preaching of God's Word is in Luke 18, verses 31 through 34. Luke 18, verses 31 through 34. As we've read here again, then these few verses, Then he took unto him the twelve, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished, for he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted on. And they shall scourge him and put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. And they understood none of these things, and the saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. Throughout the Bible, there is a message of incomparable glory that is constantly revealed. We read something of that in Psalm 22, and it speaks of all ends of the earth shall turn unto the Lord. We read elsewhere of the kingdoms of this earth are become the kingdom of our God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is the hope of the glory to come that belongs unto the believer when Christ shall wipe from our eyes every tear. And when he shall, what an amazing thought that these very words shall be heard by the ears of all believers. Well done, a good and faithful servant. Enter in to this paradise of God, this rest, the joy of the Lord. Indeed, throughout the Scriptures, there is a tremendous message of glory. And this message of glory, of course, centers in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is the King that is promised to come who will establish a kingdom of righteousness, who will cast out all wickedness and will heal the brokenhearted. And all these things are very clearly uh, anticipated and prophesied in the scripture. And yet, as we saw in reading Psalm 22, this incomparable blessing and glory is preceded by an equally incomparable shame and reproach. And of course, we're familiar with the term cross. And yet, in today's world, the cross has become little more than a decoration, a piece of jewelry, a tattoo, a thing that's put upon buildings where churches gather. And we have, in a large way, forgotten the shame that the cross communicated. There on a cross, a criminal would hang, naked, beaten, bruised, unable so much as to wipe, sweat from his eye, unable to swipe away the insects that would be hovering all about them, the birds that would begin to pluck upon their broken flesh. All of this shame is what is communicated in the cross. And so it's no wonder when we read those testimonies in the Old Testament and descriptions of the cross in the New Testament, it is consumed with shame and agony and misery. And it's no wonder that God has said, cursed is he that hangs upon a tree. Christ was cursed for us. The cross is most prominently situated before the crown. This is true of Christ Jesus, as we'll see in this passage. But brethren, though not for any atoning or uh, satisfying of God's divine justice, the cross is likewise prominent for the Christian before the crown. And so we can see something here about our king, which is prominent. But as we're hearing this and considering this, we ought to remember 
that if this is the way our king has gone and we're to follow the footsteps of the king, likewise, before entering into glory, our lives will be met with the cross. It's no wonder then that Christ says, if you would be my disciple, my follower, my student, then you must deny yourself, you must take up your cross and follow me. So often this message is neglected. And we see that in the health and wealth, the prosperity teachings of many churches today, which says something like, if you trust God, things will go well. If you trust God, your life will get better. If you trust God, your finances will uh, you know, amount to a great mass and so on. And indeed, it's true that God is pleased to show mercies to his people. And there are times when, of course, he does provide such healing and we're taught to pray for such things. But the central message of blessing that is communicated to us is the blessing of salvation, which fullness will not be known until the return of Christ. And so there's always in this life for the Christian something still of an anticipation of the fullness that is to come. That even if we were millionaires or billionaires, the Christian would still say, what is this compared to that which is to come? And brethren, the error in all of these things that is proclaimed to the church today is founded upon an error in neglecting what Christ has gone through, his calling. So Christ helps us here. Notice in verse 31, he takes to himself the twelve. So these chosen disciples who are appointed as apostles, and he's teaching them. This is something he's done regularly And you'll see that he says, Behold, look, consider this, we go up to Jerusalem. Of course, this wouldn't have been surprising. They were nearing the Passover. They would have expected as much. But what follows is something that they had no ability to conceive, even though it was clearly testified in the Scriptures. He says, All things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. And we ought to know this term, Son of Man, definitely holds forth something of Christ's true humanity. But the title Son of Man is actually a messianic title. And so it's true to think in terms of, well, Christ's divinity is somewhat shown forth, of course, in that title, Son of God. And His humanity is shown somewhat in His title, Son of Man. But the title itself is actually a messianic title, like Christ, like Messiah, So, for instance, if you look at the book of Daniel, you can see this very thing stated. And it's important for us to try our best to get into the mind of those original hearers. When they would have heard Son of Man, what would they have considered? Now, notice this, because this actually helps us understand this confusion that embraces the disciples. In Daniel chapter 7 and at verse 13, you'll notice the statement regarding the Son of Man. And so it is, Daniel says, verse 13 of Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom and that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom that which 
shall not be destroyed. Now, we're not saying that this is the only passage that would have been in the minds of the disciples, but it most certainly was something that would have influenced their thought. And so when Christ says, we're going to Jerusalem, that all things written of the Son of Man may be accomplished, think of what this passage may have been misunderstood by them to say, that in going to Jerusalem, now I'm going to receive all of this glory. Now I'm going to receive the fullness of that which is promised by blessing, the dominion, the glory, the kingdom, and all people, nations, and languages will serve me, and my dominion will now be established an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. And so you'll notice our passage that all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. But notice, it doesn't stop there. He then explains, For He, the Son of Man, shall be delivered unto the Gentiles. He'll be handed over. He'll be betrayed. And shall be mocked, spitefully entreated, and spitted on, and they shall scourge Him. Now let's pause there just to note Brethren, have you been handed over to the godless enemies? I imagine there's a way in which you can say that to some extent. You know, I've known what it is to feel that. But Christ literally was taken by the Jews. The Messiah was taken by the Jews and handed over to the godless nations and was told, uh, who told them, put him to death. Notice further, he was mocked, spitefully entreated, spitted on, and scourged. We hear stories of some who in this life have had whips that have crashed against the back and ripped flesh from off of their frame. Christ had that. Now compare that with what is written in Daniel 7. And you'll start to see the seed of confusion that grips the disciples. But what's further is, it says, shall put him to death. Remember, the Messiah is to receive an everlasting dominion. And now it's said that he'll die. And they might gain some glimmer of hope by the statement of the third day he shall rise again. But even the fact that there's a rising again is astonishing to them because it's founded upon the fact that he must be shamed and put to death in this shameful way. And so then it is that they understood none of these things. They don't even understand the resurrection because the resurrection demands a death. And so they're struggling and they're uh, wondering at this. The saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. Remember that Paul says the preaching of the cross is foolishness. It's weakness. Now, we aren't saying that these twelve are not believers. Of course, one was not, Judas Iscariot. But what's being said is the message of the cross, this fundamental message, is a most difficult message to discern. Not so much, particularly in our day, the historical fact of it, but the fullness of it, the meaning of it, and the implications of it, such that the disciples are struggling this work of the Messiah foretold so clearly in the Scriptures was yet misunderstood by the disciples, which led to some of their own struggles. 
Remember that Peter would take the sword and swing at the ear of Malchus, perhaps thinking, no, this isn't going to be the way. The Messiah is going to survive. I'll be the instrument to that end. Well, as we wrestle with this text, let us consider three things regarding Christ's work. Firstly, its record, what was recorded of his work, uh, how was it recorded. Secondly, its message. And thirdly, its reception. So as we look at the work of Christ here stated, we want to look at its record. You know, what, how was it recorded? Secondly, its message, what was said to be his work? And thirdly, its reception, how was it received as recorded? Well, firstly, then its record. When we think of a record, we think of something that's documented that tells us what's happened or that is to happen. And you'll notice that Christ directs the attention of his disciples to the things that are written. It's important for us to see the scriptures regularly direct us to the written word of God. They don't direct us to an oral tradition. They don't direct us to our own intuition. They don't direct us to our feelings and our own thoughts. They direct us to the written record that is given to us. Now, this is important because the Scriptures remain pure and entire to this day. And so it is that still it may be said that if they speak not according to the law and the testimony, to the Word of God, as God's Word tells us, it is because there's no light in them. You see, the true wisdom of God is found in the Scriptures, the written record, the Old and New Testaments that are given to us. This is the place that directs our thoughts. Now, this is helpful in context because elsewhere the disciples will hear this and you remember Peter will say, God forbid, this shall not be so. Peter was appalled by the message recorded regarding his beloved king. And yet, it gives us insight the authoritative record is not found in our hearts, in our minds, or in others. It's found in the written record that God has preserved for us. And so where is this record found? It's in the Scriptures that God has preserved for us. Now here, of course, Christ refers to the written record of the prophets. So this is a summary fashion of appealing to what we call the Old Testament. And yet, of course, we see Peter speaking of Paul's writings as Holy Scripture. Now, it's important for us to see this point. Notice in 2 Timothy in chapter 3, when Paul is speaking of the Scriptures, he says in verse 15 to Timothy, from a child thou hast known, notice this expression, the Holy Scriptures. Now, we can't help but hear the term Scriptures and relate that to the Bible. And that's, that's right. But we ought to see that this word Scriptures is simply a word referring to the writings. Those things which are written down. Now, it's not everything that's written down. Notice Paul says, it's the Holy Scriptures. Right? What we know as the Bible. And so these Scriptures are supply us that divinely inspired record of truth. And so Paul goes on to say in verse 16 of that chapter, all Scripture, referring to the Holy Scriptures, 
is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Notice the point. If we think of the place where these things are recorded, the Holy Scriptures, we can then think of the source of those Holy Scriptures. And Jesus says the, that are written by the prophets. And yet, who is the ultimate source of these written words? It's not the prophets. As Peter tells us in 1 Peter, that the Spirit of Christ which was in the Holy Prophets was the one who was guiding them to compose these holy writings. A prophet, of course, was a mouthpiece of God, an instrument used of God. And so ultimately, as Paul says, the Scriptures are given by inspiration of God. What does that mean? Well, we hear the word inspiration, we think of the common use of that today, and we see something that's beautiful, and we say, well, I'm inspired to do something. We see a kind work that's done by others, and we say, I'm inspired now to be kind to others. That's not the meaning of this word. It's speaking of the breathing out of God. God spoke, in other words. These are God's true words. say this frequently, and it's good to emphasize, you cannot speak a word unless you breathe. If you cut off your oxygen flow, you can't make a sound. You can think of this, when someone chokes, when they're actually choking, they don't make a sound because all air is cut off. They can't gurgle, they can't grunt because no sound can go over their vocal cords and be formed through their mouth and nasal passage. It's all shut off. In order to speak, To communicate, we have to breathe. Air must pass over. And so when Paul says the Scripture is given by inspiration of God, literally, it's the Scriptures are God-breathed. They're breathed out by God. They're the very words of God. And so as we see this in context, what Christ is saying is not simply what the Holy Prophets have written, but what God has recorded by the Holy Prophets. These are the divine writings. These are that holy record which tells us infallibly what will take place, what has taken place, what is right, what is wrong, what is the way of salvation, everything. And it's important for us to see this in a broader context. It's only the Holy Scriptures which provide us that infallible record of truth. It's not that we can't find some semblance in this world, right? One doesn't need to be inspired to tell us that 2 plus 2 equals 4. But if we're going to understand things without error, if we're going to understand what can only be known from God, we must look to the infallible and inerrant record given to us. And so when Christ directs His disciples to this, He's directing them unto that infallible record which God has given us, and which remains for us today. Now, brethren, we rejoice that we live further down the history and can look back not only to that which he was saying is to come to pass in Jerusalem, but we can actually look back to see what happened in Jerusalem. But this doesn't change the authority of the record still. And there are many things that are yet prophesied to come to pass, all of which may only be known by the infallible record of the Scriptures. So Christ's work 
is infallibly recorded both by prophecy and by historical fulfillment in the Scriptures. If you want to know what Christ has done, don't search your heart. If you want to know what Christ was, has done, don't search your own reason. Instead, if you want to know what Christ has done, read the Bible. Because the Bible alone is this infallible record that records for us Christ and salvation by Him. Think of what Paul says. From an infant you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise into salvation which is by faith in Christ Jesus. And when Paul wrote that, he was appealing to the Scriptures of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is able to make us wise into salvation by faith which is in Christ Jesus. Because fundamentally, this divine record is directing us to the Savior, His work, His promises, His salvation. Well, secondly, what is the message regarding Christ's work recorded in the Holy Scriptures? We saw in Daniel 7 that there is indeed a testimony of, how can we even think of it, the glory that is to come. But notice Christ says of the Son of Man, the Messiah, that He shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and so on. And you'll see that in proportion, in this passage, Christ is emphasizing His sufferings. He does get to His glory the third day He shall rise again, And what a delightful thing it is to read in the Gospels of the resurrection of Christ and the astonishment that gripped the disciples because as they were brought through what Christ is telling them of, they were brought face to face with the shame that He's speaking of and they were astounded. Remember the two disciples that are walking walking along the road and they say, are you the only man who hasn't heard what's taken place? They've crucified Him. He's dead. And beside that, this is the third day. They were astonished and gripped by the reality of the sufferings and shame. And when they saw that face to face, it was impossible apart from God's grace that they should be able to understand the resurrection. Well, notice Christ is saying this all ahead of time because He's been a student of the Scriptures. Remember the picture of Christ as a child? as He was one who was sitting with the doctors of the law, both asking and answering questions. He was one who delighted in the Word of God. And we wonder at the mystery of what's recorded for us. How can we comprehend this? That as He grew, He grew in favor with God and man. His understanding, certainly as a human, increased. That He was learning these things, but learning them in a perfect way. You and I struggle with things as we learn them. We misunderstand, we sinfully refuse, we turn aside. But imagine this for a moment. Christ was studying the Scriptures as a child. And as He heard them in the synagogue, as His mother and father read them to Him, as they talked about them, as He rose up in the morning, as He walked in the day, as He returned to His bed at night, He didn't struggle, as it were, because of sin, but He embraced this message And what he discerned by the message was a message not just of some historical fact, some disinterested thing, but he was reading of himself. This is what I will endure. This is what I'm going to face. And now he declares it. The Son of Man, I, shall be delivered. Mocked, spitefully entreated, spitted on, scourged, and put to death. Notice the message includes... 
his sufferings. What are his sufferings? Well, his sufferings, of course, precede these things. He was, as he says, the Son of Man, which had not a place to lay his head. Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has not a place to lay his head. He knew what hunger was. He knew what, was, what it was to be rejected of his family. His mother, even, and his uh, brothers and sisters uh, gave evidence of their imperfect understanding when they said he's beside himself, you know, let's go away and so on, quit doing these things. He knew these things. He knew what it was to be refused and even what it was to be sought, targeted by so-called religious men, to be stoned and put to death. He knew what it was to stand for the truth and yet to be ridiculed and uh, misrepresented. He knew all of those things. And yet here the pinnacle of his sufferings is presented to us. That which is most intimately associated with his atoning sacrifice. Notice his curse. Being delivered to the Gentiles, he would be mocked, spitefully entreated, spitted on, scourged, and put to death. Now what's astounding with these things is that this message was clearly understood by Christ. We'll get to the wonder of this, that in understanding all of that, yet he said, except, uh, rather he says, um, thy will be done, not my will. He's looking at the cup of God's wrath. And he says, if there's other ways, let it be so. But if not, I take this cup of judgment and drink it unto myself. But why was it that Christ, the Son of Man, should be appointed unto such shameful treatment? Well, brethren, let me ask you for a moment. Think of this. What do you in your sins deserve? You know, the world says, well, you know, I deserve a reproof. Oh, yeah, we do deserve reproofs, don't we? You know, I might deserve some sort of discipline. Surely we do. But our sins deserve the curse of God. This is something that Christians today have somewhat, you know, neglected. My sins deserve God's curse. I deserve the shame unending. I deserve the agony unending. I deserve death, judgment, cursedness. That's what I deserve. Now, we want to be quick to say, but Christ. But before we get to the but Christ, let's be sure to own this. I deserve the curse of God. As I stand before and I think about Christ on the cross, that's what I deserve perpetually. That's what I deserve forever. And the world says, now wait, time out. You know, I can sort of get it that, sure, if we sin against God, we deserve some sort of punishment. But you're telling me that you think that God who is loving, God who is good, that He's one who should, of necessity and justice, punish us with an everlasting curse? And we have to say, no, I don't think that at all. God revealed it. It's not my thought. It's God's Word. God is the one who has stated it. God is the one who has said, the one who sins is cursed, is under a curse. It's Christ, the gracious Savior, who has said the one that believes not is already under the wrath of God. You understand, this is fundamentally important for our own understanding of the great privileges to 
us as believers, of our way of exhorting unbelievers unto uh, the salvation which is found only in Christ. It's not that wrath is to come only. Christ says in John's Gospel that the one who believes not is already under God's wrath. Because God, can we understand this at all, God utterly despises and abhors sin. When you see the cross, you don't see some sort of uh, unjust punishment. You don't see torture. You don't see the infliction of what is inappropriate. It's not as if in some army prison, when people are going to waterboard and beat and do all of these inhumane things that the world says, it's not torture on the cross. It is the infliction of absolutely righteous and good justice. And brethren, hell is not torture. Hell is good justice inflicted upon wicked and deserving objects. Brethren, that's what we deserve. We deserve the infliction of judgment upon us. The shame, the agony, the grief of mind. You think of Christ earlier speaking of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is carried up by wings of angels into Abraham's bosom. And yet the rich man dies. And it says, in torment, he lifted up his eyes. In torment, in grief, unending. There is a great goal fixed, Abraham says. And so he from you that would cross over cannot. He from us that would cross over cannot. The reality of hell is a reality we do well to consider. Not because anyone in thinking on hell can be, quote, scared into heaven, but they can be, by God's grace, awakened and alerted to say, this is real. This is fundamental. Now, why do we labor this? Because what you see Christ suffering is hell. That's what Christ suffers on the cross. He doesn't suffer something less than what is deserved by sinners. He deserves precisely what is deserved by sinners. The wrath of God is poured out upon Christ. And when we see this, you read in Matthew's Gospel, in Luke's Gospel, in John's Gospel, in Mark's Gospel, these various ways of describing the external and internal agonies of Christ. When the disciples hear this, they are astounded. How can it be so? that the Messiah should suffer this immeasurable judgment. It doesn't make sense. He's the Deliverer sent from heaven. He's the one that's going to bring blessing and paradise and and a, a world of righteousness. How can you be saying that this King is going to be engulfed by misery? They understood none of these things. Brethren, why is it that the Messiah is so foretold to suffer these things? Well, we can look to the Old Testament. We can certainly look to the New. But a passage, I trust, which is dear to you, Isaiah 53 tells us in simplicity, when it says, verse 5, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace 
was upon Him. And with His stripes we are healed. Verse 6, The Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Notice verse 10, It pleased the Lord to bruise Him. Why did the Messiah suffer? Well, we can say there are many ways, of course, many reasons, but they're all related to this. One, because God had appointed a substitute for the salvation of His people, and nothing less than the full satisfying of divine justice would redeem that people. Nothing less than the spotless Lamb of God enduring the wrath of God would procure for us the riches of everlasting life. Nothing less than the suffering of the perfect Savior, the Messiah, would be able to provide to us this great storehouse of everlasting blessing. This is a message, of course, which was hard to understand then. It's a message that's hard to understand now. We see it more clearly because the light of the New Testament shines more focusedly upon these things. But the sufferings of Christ were appointed by God as necessary for the provision of life everlasting, forgiveness, holiness, uh, heaven to His people, all of the blessings of that coming dominion, all of the glory that was to come, understand this, was ordered by God's wisdom, grace, and mercy, and ordered through the procuring of it by the price of the Messiah's suffering. And so if you remove the suffering of Christ, guess what else you remove? You remove all of the blessings that He's promised. You can think of it this way. Some of you guys are into cars and so on. You have your engine and transmission. And if you think of your engine working well, you've poured all of your attention into the engine. And yet if the linkage between the engine and transmission falls apart, the engine can be running perfectly well, but there's going to be no motion because the transmission, which then drives the transaxle and the tires turn and so on, will not be linked together. They must be coupled. They must be brought together so that they work in tandem. Well, all of the blessings that are to come to us come because of this link in Christ between His sufferings and His glory. If there's not the first, there will not be the second. If there's not the suffering, there will not be the glory. And notice Christ puts this together. He says, They shall scourge Him and put Him to death. Oh, what a death it was. Most wickedly uh, enacted by wicked men and yet most sovereignly and graciously provided by the grace of God, a Savior, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Here's the substitute. Here's the spotless one. Here's the one God has provided. And He goes into our place of judgment. And He bears it all and He dies. Notice this clearly. With all of the nonsense of so-called professors of theology and scientists and so on who say it's impossible that Christ died and rose again. We say, it is utterly impossible that one should die and rise again by his own strength as a mere mortal. There's no man that's ever done it. Except for one who is the Son of God incarnate. 
except for one who is, yes, fully man, but also fully God. And you see the Scriptures, the only record of what is to be received for our faith and salvation and guidance in the worship of God and service to God, tells us so simply, He will suffer immeasurably unto death, not unto a swooning, not unto a comatose state. He's not sort of out of consciousness and all the vitals at that time that could have been checked would have been checked and yet there was no sign, but He still had something in Him. No, He died, truly died. And He was buried for the period, notice, of three days. And yet, on the third day, it says, He rose again. So from His sufferings, the message tells us as well of His glory to come. We often speak of His humiliation and His exaltation. And so the children who are learning the catechism will be familiar with this, you know, Christ's humiliation, Christ's exaltation. But we don't need to be students of the catechism to see that. We see it throughout the Scriptures. Notice, for instance, in Philippians chapter 2, you have this so simply stated for us in verse 6, speaking of Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation and took upon Him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Then being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself. Do you know what it is to be humbled by others? Be put in your place? To be told, not belligerently, you're out of line. This isn't where you belong. You don't have the right to talk in that way. You don't have, this isn't your venue. You're not to be talking now, you're to be silent. You're not to be moving now, you're to sit down. And when that's just, it's something that hits us, embarrasses us, and the world has no place for it. And they get it all you know, bothered by it and they storm off and everything. But a Christian knows what it is at times, rightly to be put in their place, to be humbled. But notice the expression, Christ humbled Himself. Christ brought Himself to the position of a slave and servant. Christ, though He is, he doesn't think it robbery to be equal with God. He is God. I'm not stealing from God to be counted equal with Him because I am. But in humbling Himself, He puts Himself into the lowest position ever known among the human race. There's never one who was more low than Christ. And He willingly brought that upon Himself. I humbled Myself, Christ could say. That's what Paul is saying. He humbled Himself. And what did He do? He became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. You hear the word cross? Throughout all the sense of gold jewelry, earrings, tattoos, t-shirts, you know, catchy, Christian phrases, bumper stickers, crosses on buildings, throw all of that out and hear the word curse. He was exposed to the death of the cross. He was cursed. The judgment of God consumed Him. He was the whole burnt offering. There offering Himself up, both priest and sacrifice and altar. All of this suffering he willingly brought himself to. But notice what follows. Wherefore, 
God also hath highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name. Do you see that word wherefore, that connection? Again, the glory, the exaltation follows His humiliation. Without His humiliation as the mediator, as the Savior of sinners, there would not be the exaltation both of Himself personally and of Himself publicly as the Savior of His people. And so Christ says, on the third day, He shall rise again. The beginning of His glory. So we talk about His humiliation, His being born, that in a lowly state, you know, all of these things, His suffering on the cross, His death, His remaining under the power of death for a time. All of those things are part of His humiliation. His exaltation begins in history upon the first day of the week, the third day after He dies, when He rises again, exalted. Paul says in Romans that He was declared to be the Son of God with power. By what? By the resurrection. The resurrection is this first display of His exalted state. And then He'll perform miracles in the sight of the apostles who will be witnesses to testify of the historical fact that the one who was so shamefully treated, who died as a curse, is now risen in glory. And he'll ascend before their eyes. And he'll go into heaven. And the angels will say, why are you staring into heaven? As he's gone up, so will he return. And it testifies of his reign in heaven and his future and certain return in glory. Brethren, All of this is bound up. This is, we can say it this way, the message of the Bible. The Bible tells us something about economics. It tells us something about diets. It tells us something about all sorts of things. But the message of the Bible is of the Savior Jesus Christ. When we're searching the Scriptures, we can learn and ought to learn all manner of things. And the Scriptures teach us about God's holy law. And the the Scriptures teach us about the form of church government. The Scriptures teach us about the relation of the Old and New Testaments. And all these things are fundamentally good and worthy of our attention. But all of them relate ultimately to the central message of Christ crucified and risen. So he summarizes the whole of what the prophets record with reference to His death and resurrection. Brethren, may I ask you for a moment, when you think of God's infallible record, what is it that you summarize it with? If it's not something somehow related to the person work of Christ, may I tell you, you don't know the Bible. You may know God's holy law. You may know certain things. You may know certain principles. And all of those may be well and good. But if it's not driving you to the work of Christ suffering for sinners and risen again, you have missed the fundamental truth that pervades the whole of Scripture. Think of this. So soon as Adam falls, God comes. He reproves and corrects. But He promises a seed of the woman who will do what? Well, He'll crush the head of the serpent. And with the serpent's fangs, He'll be bruised in His heel. But He'll crush and destroy the serpent. What is that testifying of? It's testifying of that one seed of Eve who would come and destroy Satan and his kingdom of darkness. And yet, He would do so suffering. 
he would be struck, wounded, but he wouldn't be undone, full. He would be the one who ruined Satan. You get pictures of heaven in the book of Revelation. What are they consumed with? Oh, thank you, God, that we now have green grass, that we now have food, that we now have all the entertainment that I ever wanted. Thank you, God, that I now get to play this game and that game. Thank you, God, that I get to be with my friends. None of that is on their mouth. Their mouth is consumed. Worthy is the Lamb of God who has saved us with His own blood. They're consumed with Christ the Savior. The whole of the Bible is focused upon this blessed arrangement of a Savior sent to suffer in order to redeem, and in suffering and redeeming who should be exalted to the right hand of God, and as King of kings and Lord of lords, should orient and orchestrate all things to the gathering of His people, to the praise of the glory of God's grace, to the ve- for the vessels of mercy, as Paul says, who are appointed unto that beforehand. How is this message received? Well, let's notice two things before we close. By others, it was misunderstood. We don't mean the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the lawyers and the Herodians and Pilate and Caesar. Of course, they misunderstood it. But is it not striking here that it's of the twelve that it's recorded, they understood none of these things? What are you talking about? It's hard for us to understand how they could not understand it. But let's remember the reason we understand it is twofold. Because they who didn't understand it were brought to witness it and made faithful witnesses so now their writings, by God's grace, help us understand it. They were, for a season, ignorant and struggling, but God in mercy brought them to discern. And now we read their writings. Who's there? Peter's there. James is there and others who would record these things. Paul later, a witness to the resurrected glory of Christ, would record these things for us. They misunderstood. They considered perhaps only the glory that was to come. Notice, for instance, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. We've seen this in Daniel 7. Notice Mark chapter 10. Or rather, Mark chapter 8, and at verse 31, we read there that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again, and he spake that saying openly, and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. We don't doubt but that Peter was intending good, but Peter hears of this message and he pulls Christ aside and says, No, this is, you're wrong, you're off, this is not the message. When, when he, Jesus, had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Listen to this language Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. What's the point? It is natural to men to reject suffering. 
It's natural for men to say, we want the crown, we don't want the cross. You'll get the crown, you don't need the cross. We see these promises that promise dominion and glory. Let's just focus on that. Don't tell us about the cross. This is not the way. All these things. And Peter is there, doubtlessly with good intentions, trying to reason with Christ. And yet Christ sees through Peter unto Satan, which is saying, here's a way to the crown. You don't have to go through the cross. Do you remember one of Satan's temptations? Listen, do you see all these, these nations, all these kingdoms? I'll give you the crown without the cross. Bow down to me, and I'll give you all the nations as your inheritance. Isn't that the temptation that grips us today, even as Christians? I want the crown without the suffering. I want the glory without denying myself. I want all the riches of the blessings that are promised without having to deny myself, take up my cross daily, and follow the Lord. Now this is what the disciples then present to Christ, Peter particularly. No, no, no. Let's put away this message of suffering. Let's just talk about happy things. Let's think happy thoughts. Let's be positive thinkers. Let's make sure we sort of rally ourselves with all the good things, the riches, the blessings. Let's put away all this sadness and sorrow. You know, that's not of God. That's of Satan. And Christ says in so many terms, the message that denies the suffering is a message of Satan. Think of that for a moment. When false teachers stand in a pulpit and their solitary message is, God wants to bless you. And if you suffer, it's of Satan. You know who's actually speaking of Satan? It's those false teachers. They're denying the fundamental way of God's kingdom in this present world. And it's expressed most fully and in a way beyond compare, in Christ. Christ suffered for our salvation. But notice though others misunderstand and ignore, there's one who embraces it, and it's Christ. Christ embraces the message, not as something that referred to someone else. He takes it knowing that it's of Him, and He says, we go to Jerusalem, and I know exactly what's going to happen. You and I, in our own lives, have already shown what we do when suffering comes. We try to avoid it, ignore it. We try to, in our own control, manhandle it, manipulate it, get it into a place where we don't have to face it, and so on. Understandably. But Christ looks at it square on and says, that's mine, and I'm taking it. And brethren, if He hadn't, there would be no glory, no salvation to His kingdom. Well, as we close, we close by wondering at the love and commitment of Christ. Why is it that Christ goes up to Jerusalem willingly to endure all that the prophets spoke of? Well, surely because He loved His Father. To do Thy will I take delight. But we're told in Hebrews that it's also because of the joy that was set before Him. We're told in Ephesians that He washes His bride and beautifies her. That His blood, as we read in Isaiah, His stripes heal us. He does so out of love to His beloved people. He's committed. You get this picture elsewhere recorded that He sets His face as flint to Jerusalem and He's driving, almost as we would say as a madman, 
consumed with this. I must go to Jerusalem. There's nothing else that my life is for but for going to Jerusalem. And the disciples are amazed at this. Look how steadfast He is to this. And though they misunderstood, we understand. He's committed to the sufferings out of love to His people. He's steadfast. I will not shirk. I will not compromise. I will embrace the fullness of this wrath. Though I personally deserve not the slightest aspect of it, I know my beloved people do, and so I take it for them. You see, Christ is fully committed. Where do you doubt His commitment to you today? Because we're tempted that way, aren't we? Something happens in our lives and we say, I don't know, you know, is Christ committed to me? Does Christ care for me? Does Christ love me? And we have afflictions and trials and pains and difficulties and discouragements and setbacks and we have what we think is what we're to be doing and as we start to follow the Lord, it falls out adversely against us and we sit there confused, we turn the lights off and we sit in silence and we moan and we groan and we complain and we say, if God loved me, then surely this wouldn't happen. Brethren, you need no other testimony of the love of God than this. That Christ knew all the sufferings that He must suffer and He went to Jerusalem for you. He went to Jerusalem to suffer this most ignominious death. This most shameful curse. And He did so out of love to His Father whose will it was to save His people this way and out of love to His people for whom He came to save. And so when it is, Satan gets our ear and says, listen, if He loved you, you say, if? Here's the record of God's Word. Here is the authoritative statement of truth. If He loved me? No, 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 no. That He loved me. He pursued His own death that I might live. Brethren, here is wonder worthy of our meditation now and forever. May God so bless us. Would you stand with me for prayer?